Gale's open, they're away in the Golden Slipper, there's a great start, and Mick Mitt Basque on the extreme outside is about the first out, Jack Boyle. Jackler on the outside, lunging, but Catlin opening just in front, Jackler trying desperately, can't reach him. Catlin opening has lasted to win the Doncaster by a hit, the Jackler. This Iron podcast is brought to you by Racing New South Wales, Sky Racing and Inglis. Snap Melbourne lockdown forced the rescheduling of many events, including the English Great Southern Sale, which will now be held on July 4th and 5th, with 409 weanlings and 125 broodmares to be offered. Stallions represented in the weanling section include Capitalist, Exceed and Excel, More Than Ready, Zoo Star, Written Tycoon, So You Think, Piero, Extreme Choice, Flying Arty, and Done Deal, just to scratch the surface. First season sires with weanlings in the sale include Justify, Trapeze Artist, Written By and Brave Smash. The Broodmare section will be held on day two and features a mix of proven producers and young mares in full to big name stallions. If you're a buyer who likes to buy a weanling at a realistic price and turn it over the following year at a handsome profit, remember the great Southern sale has been described as a pin hooker's paradise. The new dates again are Sunday, July the 4th and Monday, July the 5th. The 2021 English Great Southern Sale at Oakland's Junction in Melbourne. Our special guest on this podcast is a former jockey whose achievements will be well remembered by veteran racing fans and will spark the curiosity of younger fans. Sydney Gordon Spinks, who always preferred to be called Gordon, was one of Australia's most highly rated young jockeys in the 60s and 70s when trainers like Tommy Smith were regularly using his services. He learned the rudiments of race riding under the tutelage of the legendary Theo Green, who had budding champion Ron Quinton under his wing at the same time. And Theo often marvelled at the fact that he was lucky enough to have two apprentices of such boundless talent in his care at the same time. Gordon had several stops and starts during his riding career and three overseas stints which collectively kept him out of Australia for more than two years. He was still riding regular track work at Rose Hill in 1995 at age 48 but gradually phased himself out with a career tally of very close to 1,000 wins including some of Australia's most coveted Group 1 races. Gordon Spinks is now 72 years of age. He's the father of three sons, he's the grandfather of five and the great-grandfather of two. He's had indifferent health in recent times and he actually suffered a heart attack while driving his car eight years ago. He's currently awaiting the call-up to have bypass surgery, but thankfully he's well enough to join us on the podcast. Appreciate your time, Gordon. Yes, thanks for John, uh, for inviting me, John. I, uh, it's come out of the blue, but I'm very happy to be uh, called upon to do this. Going back to that heart scare in 2011, you didn't realise you'd suffered a heart attack. No, well, as it turned out, I, I was working on a cattle station out at Blackwall in, in Western Queensland and... Uh, and I, I had a few problems with health and 
I uh, I called in into to Longreach Hospital and they they said that I needed a few tests, but they only did them once a month. They advised me to go to Brisbane to get them done, and mm. and on I, I I took time off and I and I drove to Brisbane, which was about fourteen hours away. Yeah. And um, when I got to Brisbane, I dropped into the doctor's surgery that I'd had previously, and. Uh, and they took a blood test and they told me that I'd had a heart attack within the last two weeks, mm. uh, which would have meant that I either had it before I left or had it on the way. Uh, I, I didn't realise it, but anyway, they put me straight into hospital and um, mm. they gave me two stents into the one artery, which was 90 and 70% blocked at either end. And uh, mm. and now these days, they're after well, that that was well. It was in two thousand and eleven, so mm. getting back eight or nine years, and uh, they're, they're they're starting to block again now. And mm. well, they, well, they didn't say block; they call it narrowing. It sounds better. Yeah. Anyway, they're <laughs> they're narrowed anyway, and I uh, they advised me that uh, they'll need to go around them next time. So. Mm. At open, open heart surgery, but it's not as bad these days as it used to be, I suppose. You live in retirement at Palm View on the Sunshine Coast, a stone's throw from that beautiful racetrack at Caloundra. Yeah, it's only about 10 minutes away, Caloundra Racecourse, and, uh, you know, I, I drive past it a few times, but, well, you nearly have to to, to get mm. into Caloundra, into the township, but um, I, I haven't been to the races, I I, uh, I think I've only ever been to one race meeting since mm. oh, 2000. Mm. So, uh, and that was oh, about five years ago, four years ago. I think I went to a race meeting at the Gold Coast, mm. uh, but I've never, I've never, uh, I've never hankered to go to a meeting. I'm, I'm, I'm just, I, I mean, I'm right out of the game, you know. Mm. Well, let's confirm or refute a theory that you are related to Andrew Spinks, who's riding in Queensland and rides plenty of winners. I think his son Adam is also a jockey. Uh, there is a relationship. Yeah, for a long time we didn't know. Um, well, he didn't know. I always suspected it that he'd be a, a relative because he came from Armadale and all my family came from Armadale. Mm. And um, we looked we looked right into it a bit, and uh, I found out that his dad is my cousin, uh-huh. which makes Adam my second cousin, and his young fellow mm. my third cousin. So there is a there is a a, a link there. Mm. You were born in Coffs Harbour in 1947. You moved to Sydney at an early age with your brother and two sisters, and the family settled at Villawood. Now your dad, Alden was a jack-of-all-trades, as people were back in that era, Gordon. He could do just about anything. Yeah, he was He was pretty good. He, at the time, we didn't realise it, though. It's only since then that, that we sort of really looked back and seen what he did do. But he, mm. he built a couple of houses on the way from, well, he, he was born in Gyra on the, mm. on the New England Ranges and... Um, he, he built a couple of houses along the way and then they went to Sydney and uh, my sister and brother were born uh, in Sydney. 
so they uh, they must they must have went to Sydney, then went back to the bush, and then come back to Sydney again. Because on the way, I was born in Cox Harbour, and my youngest sister was born in Taree. Mm. But I don't remember all those things. I I, uh, I I only remember living in a tent in the backyard of an artie's place at, at <laughs> Fairfield in Sydney. <laughs> That's a long time ago, of course. Yeah. One of your dad's specialities was the old world art of boot making. Yes, he he used to. Uh, I re- I remember him mainly as a welder. He used to work at a place called Unley and Sons at Redfern. Mm-hmm. Um, but he used to do a lot of boot making at home, mm. and he he used to uh, go out and get shoes from people's places and, and bring them home and repair them and then take them back to them. Mm. He charged about a shilling a pair or something. Yeah, uh, he was a marvel, Alden Spinks. Now, one of your Villawood neighbours owned a little pony, which you couldn't keep your eyes off. You'd rig up little makeshift stirrups out of rope. You'd sit on the fence wondering how you could get your backside on that pony. Yeah, there was the pony, it was only a relative newcomer to Kerrang Avenue, and that was the name of the street we lived in. Mm. Uh, it was mainly scrub back those days, and um, this fellow called Mr Cassidy had this skinny old horse and mm. I'd never been on one before, as I say. You say I, I used to stick a bit of rope over the back fence that divided our yard and jump up on it and use the rope as stirrups and mm. thought I could ride, but I'd never had the opportunity. <laughs> and uh, anyway, this Mr. Cassidy, he, I used to go over and look at his horse, and he, he he threw me up on it, and it was it was one of the highlights of the street at the time. Everybody come running over and ran home and told Mum that I was sitting on the back of this horse. <laughs> that, that's the closest thing I'd ever gotten until I went to the circus on the end of the street when it came to town, and they they put a rope round me and threw me up on this thing, and then dragged me up off its back up under the roof of the tent, and then dropped me again. And, <laughs> that I'd never, never had anything to do. Being in suburbia, we didn't ever have room for horses. But no. um, And I always thought I could ride, but I'd never, ever tried. Yep. One day you spotted an advertisement in a community paper calling for expressions of interest in becoming an apprentice jockey. And that advertisement had been placed by a man called Theo Green, who at that time had stables in Oak Street at Rose Hill and you couldn't get to Oak Street quickly enough. Yes, well, it was it was quite strange because leading up to that, I was all prepared to join the Navy. I, I, um, I just wanted to join the Navy if mm. I could and, um, and I was all prepared to do that. And all of a sudden, I, I was about 14 at the time and so it was a long time between jumping on the fence and Mr Cassidy's horse until then, so it was probably ten years, mm. eight eight to ten years, and um, all of a sudden when I saw in the advertisement in the paper, I it sort of come back to me a little bit and I thought, gee, I'd, I'd, I would like to do that because I remember standing on the side of the Hume Highway and watched Basil Andrews' Warwick Farm livestock trucks go past, the blue and red ones, and I used to mm. think, gee, Jockeys go in those, mm. and I can remember saying that and thinking that for years. But 
that seemed to come to the fore a bit when I saw this ad, and I thought, gee, maybe I'll be able to ride in one of those if I go to the stables. And, <laughs> and, and so I, uh, Mum said, do you really want to do it? I said, well, yes, we'll go and see. So uh, we jumped on the bus and went to Gramble and walked from Gramble Station to Rose Hill, which was a pretty warm day that day, yeah. and uh, and we found 27 Oak Street, and, uh, and so we went in and uh, – and discuss what might happen. Mm. Now, Theo had two apprentices at the time, Frank Powyer, better known as Johnny Powyer, good writer, and a little bloke called Eddie French, who was homesick. Yeah, well, Eddie was the apprentice. Uh, Frankie, or Johnny as we used to call him, he, he, um, he, was, he wasn't quite apprenticed yet. Well, he was apprenticed, but he, he hadn't, hadn't got his riding ticket. Mm. Uh, but Eddie was getting a bit homesick, so Theo said that, you know, there was no room for me there, but when he went, because Theo only had a handful of horses and he had to have a certain amount before he could have more than one apprentice. Mm. And um, he said once once he goes home, which would be about two weeks' time, well, then I could come and move in, which eventually happened. But in the meantime, I'd go to work every morning and, and go home every night like a normal job, but... Mm. Um, once Eddie moved on, well, then I moved in, and and then I remember uh, Johnny. He got his he got his riding license at Rosebury Racecourse before it closed down, just before it closed down. Mm. So, yeah. And then uh, then I was just a stable hand for a fair while, and I I, I didn't well I couldn't ride. So, mm. well, Theo had a great little lead pony there at the time called Sandy. And Sandy was your first ride. Yeah, old Sandy, he sort of taught quite a few of us. He uh, actually was Sharon Green, which is Theo's daughter. Mm. Uh, it was her pony and, uh, and we had this neighbour around the road. He used to come around every Sunday morning and put a set of colours on Sharon, which we call who we called Jock. That was a nickname and she'd get led around the streets of Rose Hill on Sunday mornings on old Sandy. But um, he was a good lead pony, but he was a, a, a cantankerous old thing. He was very cunning and uh, mm. Theo used to ride him track work some mornings alongside us and uh, and he used to duck out the gap all the time. <laughs> but throughout the day, once we could sit on, we'd, we'd go over into the car park at Rose Hill, which was only dirt those days, and, Right up over the hill and back, and mm. just get used to sitting on one. Yeah, he taught us a few things. Theo Green had been an apprentice jockey, and by his own admission, an ordinary one. But he did like to ride work with his apprentices. He was really your first tutor. Yeah, he rode work with all of us at different times, and um, oh, he, he was pretty hard. He was he was fair, but he was hard and. Uh, you know, because he was riding alongside us, he, he made sure that we sat right and our balance was right and things like that. And I, I, I became pretty adept at, at doing that with him beside me. And uh, mm. and then w- when he dropped off and I started to ride work on my own, there was a, a terrible horse at, at Rose Hill and a, a fellow called Kenny Montgomery who, who trained Bogan Road back mm. those days. He had this thing and it was uh, – it was called Bold Blonde, and it used to bolt with me every single morning. I dreaded going <laughs> to get on it. <laughs> and Theo said to Kenny, 
if you don't mind, can he keep riding it because he will learn to end up handling this thing. Yeah. And so uh, Kenny agreed, and so every morning I'd tremble and shake and wander around and get onto this thing, and as soon as it stepped foot on the track, it would go with me a couple of laps, and mm. and then I mastered it one morning, and then he sold it. So Goodness me. I remember Ken Montgomery, and you're quite yeah, right. Nice he did train Bogan Road. He was a great sprinter in his own right. Now, Ronnie Quinton is six months younger than you, so his apprenticeship didn't start until a bit after you. He had been there a couple of times doing work experience, but you'd have to say that you were stable mates uh, during your apprenticeships. Yeah, well, stable mates for a long time because those days the apprenticeship was about seven years. It ended when you were 21 and you started when you were 14. So Mm. uh, these days you can start at 21 and end at 31, but uh, those days it was a long, hard grind with one day off every fortnight and uh so we were together for about oh probably six six and a half years at the stables and you were great mates back then and in fact that friendship has been maintained all these years yeah well well we were well you live like brothers you know there was uh, there wasn't much room in the boys rooms there was only enough to swing a couple of cats and mm. uh and as Theo got better, he, he built more onto the boys' room, which meant that he needed more staff. And we finished up as about five of us lived in a room for about three. So mm. um, over time, well, you, you get you get accustomed to to people living that close, and uh, and we, everything we did, we did together. It was sort of uh, we didn't have any outdoor life those days. You weren't allowed out of a night. You weren't allowed to drive cars. You weren't allowed to do anything. Mm. So the closest we ever did was to to go up to town for for dinner of a night because Mrs Green was very sick at different times and um, Theo used to send us up to uh, up to Parramatta to a Chinese restaurant for dinner every night and uh, mm. and and that that was our main outing apart yeah. from our day off. Now you were christened Sydney Gordon Spinks, but you wanted nothing to do with the Christian name of Sydney from a very early age. Nothing to do with it at all. I still don't to this day. Uh, it reminded me of a, a school kid with glasses and a satchel hanging over his back going to school, and I've never thought of it in any other way. Yeah. People have shortened it to Sid. They've called, called me one thing or another over a period of time, but I despise Sydney as a name. Sid, I don't mind, but I don't like being called it. So I much preferred Gordon throughout my whole life. Mm. Your first race ride was on to Linju at a midweek Randwick meeting and you admit it wasn't the performance of a future top jockey. Well, it was scary actually. I um, We'd had a few rides and jump outs and that. We used to go to Hawkesbury quite a bit and, and there was barrier trials up there on Thursdays. So we'd go up there and we'd, we knew what we had to do, and I I, I got my licence at, at, in a barrier trial at Rose Hill on the Monday, and um, that meant that I could ride whenever. In those days, you could go straight to town. You didn't have to go to the provincials for a certain amount of rides or to the country, mm. and my first ride was at Ramwick in a seven-furlong maiden, 
by and a horse was called Tolinja. It was named after three kids, Terry, Lynn and June, and they had a little bit of each put into it and it mm. became Tolinju. Mm. And the fellow that owned it was part owner of Golden Black later in years that mm. won the Melbourne Cup. Yeah, not Hugh Gage, was it? Huey Gage, yeah. Mm. And he lived out at Ride. Yeah. Not far from the ride swimming pool, and I remember he had two ponies. One was Snowy, and one was Bluebell that his kids didn't no longer need. Mm-hmm. And I had to go all the way to ride and lead Bluebell off Snowy all the way down Victoria Road and across the old bridge there, the Iron Iron Bridge at Rose Hill, mm-hmm. all the way home on a Saturday morning in peak hour traffic. And I've never been so scared in my life. <laughs> We finished up with them when old Snowy had sort of had enough. Mm. The old, uh, the old, the old chestnut horse. Yeah. Uh, our first pony. You had I to mean, go all the way to Mudgee to ride your first winner. The horse was called Gold Cat. How did you come to get the ride at Mudgee? Well, we trained Gold Cat. Oh yeah. Uh, and he was, he wasn't much good, but. Um, there was some people that called Cox, they owned a stud called Burrandulla up at Mudgee and old Terranian stood up there, the old stallion. Mm. And uh, and we trained Gold Cat. Well, Theo was never going to really keep him. He wasn't up to, up to the class of town or the provincials and the owners decided they wanted to take him home. So Theo put him in a race, a maiden race up at Mudgee and, I went up with them and rode him, and uh, and he just happened to win. That was my first winner. I'd had a few tries on horses earlier in the piece, but I think it was about the 23rd race ride I'd had before I, I happened to score one. So. Mm-hmm. Your first city winner was for Theo Green. It was a horse called Luna Boy at Randwick, and you went very close to making it a double on the day because you were just nutted on a horse called the Somme in a later race. Yes, I I, uh, I rode old Luna Boy and the, the boss, Theo, said, go straight to the front and on every bend, skip around the bends and hold him up on the straight bits of the, the track. And, mm. and so I, I, I did that and, and he, he led all the way, old Luna Boy. He had a head on him like a 44-gallon drum. <laughs> And he uh, <laughs> he wouldn't pretty easily, and uh, and then I come out on on one of Teddy Stanton's horses, which Jack Ingham owned, and that was yeah. a pretty long association with the Inghams, mm. uh, called the Somme at a hundred to one, and he got beat a short half head. Yeah, and uh, I even protested, but because the thing that beat him was short price favourite, they decided that they wouldn't go that way and uh, keep the punters happy. You rode some pretty useful horses after that, Persian Emblem, Irish Sky, Lucifina, skinny-looking mare with the breastplate who could – she used to get back a long way, Gordon, but gosh, she had a booming finishing run, that mare, Lucifina. Yeah, Teddy Stanton trained her too for for a couple of fellas that lived in Auburn. Mm. Uh, one was a – I think one was up being the Lord Mayor almost and the other one just had a little – Earth-moving business, Buggy and Frogly, their name was. Mm, that's right. And uh, she was a good mare. She was 
as you say, a skinny, tall, black little thing. And yeah, uh, but but she she could gallop, and she was very hard to ride. You had to sort of get her out in one go. If you didn't pull her out from behind them, she wouldn't come out. Mm. And I think I, I, I was the only one that ever won on her for a fair while. Mm. And then they transferred her from Teddy Stanton to Ray Guy. And, yeah. and uh, I think Malcolm Johnson might have won on her mm. after that. Tell but, you who did win on her one day, Cliffy Clare. Yeah, well, old Cliffy Clare, he, he sort of – I used to ride a lot for Teddy Stanton and then old Cliffy Clare come along and mm. uh, he he sort of more or less was stable rider at, at – uh, as I went to England and that probably gave him an opening to go into the Stanton camp. Mm. And at the time, Teddy was training all Jack Ingham's horses. So, um, and that was the first time I ever went away and that's when Sweet Embrace won the, the Golden Slipper because I was I would have ridden had I stayed in Sydney and uh, mm. she won the Golden Slipper as a, as a maiden and old Cliffy rode her. Mm. That's one of the... One one of two that I missed out on in the, the Golden Slipper because a few years later I, I went to Ireland and uh, Fairy Walk. And I was riding Fairy Walk for Tommy Smith, mm. and she got up and won it as a maiden too. But I was out of the country, so mm, with G Moore on board and with George Moore on. Yeah. Mm. Now uh, that's a term of endearment, of course. When we say "old Cliffy Clare," it just seemed that Cliff had been around forever. And do you know, Gordon, he is still going strong. He's got to be 87 or 88. Well, he looked like he was 87 or 88 when I was a kid. <laughs> and like, like most people do, and they never change. If you were to go to the races today, you'd see the same heads and they'd still look the same. Yeah, I know what you But, uh, <laughs> you know, I used to call him old Cliffy because he was a lot older than I was. And yeah, of course. I even looked at an old movie not long back called The Sundowners and damn me if he was in that. Mm. Yeah. Is, is it, you know, and I had one of those bush races in the Sundowners, and, and, and there is his name up on the semaphore board, Cliffy Clare. And mm. I thought, oh my God, he is old. <laughs> so, but a nice fellow. I used to like old Cliff. Oh, Actually, great he gave me a skull cap one day from yeah. America. He had a couple of the skull caps that he brought back from America. Mm. They will get sent from America anyway. He gave me one of those. I always, I always liked him, even though he took my job off me. Mm. I still liked him. Yeah, and a great bloke, Cliff, and great-hearted fellow and extremely popular and well-respected and, as I said, still hale and hearty in his late 80s. Hey, Gordon, you won a couple of races on a very classy mare called Seeley's Image in the mid-1960s. Unfortunately, you didn't get to ride her when she won the Stradbroke. I think Darby McCarthy rode her on that occasion. But she's probably best known... Uh, as the dam of a great horse called Imogil. Yeah, I had two rides on her, uh, and she she was trained at Warwick Farm. And um, of course, when when you're an apprentice, you, you you're told what to ride. You know, people book you through your boss, and um, mm. and so I I never knew what I was on until the last minute, and and she happened to be one of them. But I'd heard of her because of her career. And uh, I thought, gee, she'd be she's a good one to ride. And anyway, she she won a welter at Rose Hill the first time I rode her, and the second time I rode her again. But the float broke down going to the races, and she had to walk about three or four kilometres. Well, they were miles then mm. uh, to the races before she even won. But she did still finish up winning. Mm. 
Oh, no, she Brad- was a Bonnie mare. She won a Stradbroke. She ran second in the Doombin 10,000 the same year. And I fancy she won the Warwick Stakes as a three-year-old filly. Really? Oh, she was a top-class mare. Gordon, we'll just pause for a moment to clear a commitment on the podcast. Back with Gordon Spinks in a moment. From July the 1st, 10 race programs will become the norm at Sydney's Saturday race meetings. This is the result of the introduction of midway races for horses trained in the smaller metro and provincial stables. Midway races will carry $100,000 in prize money, as will the tab highways up from $75,000, while normal Saturday races will go to $130,000. Country Sky 1 races will go to $24,000, Sky 2 races to $15,000, and Country Non-Tab to $10,000. Another 20 meetings will be added to the Country Showcase Series, where minimum stakes will be $30,000. Feature races to receive a prize money boost are the Epsom to 1.5 million and the time-honoured Villiers goes from 250 to 750,000. The English sales this year have produced unbelievable figures at both ends of the market, a clear indicator that many new owners are coming into the industry as individuals, as members of smaller ownership groups or as members of larger syndicates formed by recognised syndication companies. You don't have to own winks to cover all X's and to have a lot of fun in town, on the provincials or on the country circuit. There's never been a better time to go racing in New South Wales. Back with Gordon Spinks, and we're going to talk about the Jim Crack Stakes of 1965, which was a very significant race for you. You won on a filly called Port Joy, which I think was Jack and Bob Ingham's first winner as owners in their own right. Was that okay? That the case? Uh I'm not sure whether it was their first winner. I, I, I'm sure they they had a couple of others uh, prior to that because I, I remember riding a couple of horses for them earlier in the piece. But um, I remember that because they were very significant buys from the from the English sales at Easter. Mm. Uh, and Port Joy was by Todman, and she was five thousand guineas, which was the highest price yielding filly at the sales. Mm. The other horse, the colt, was uh, there was a colt by Star Kingdom and he was 10,000 guineas and his name was King's Challenge. Mm. And I was riding for uh, Teddy Stanton at the time and when they had their official two-year-old trials, Port Joy won hers, although it wasn't Port Joy at the time. No. It was Tinder Joy, and they had to change the name because that was a brand of their chickens. A commercial name, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, they called her Port Joy, but she won her barrier trial at Ramwick, and the colt won his by six or eight lengths mm. and looked like being anything. Uh Race day come around and Port Joy led all the way in the gym crack mm. and in the breeder's plate the colt run third uh, and never even won a maiden, I don't think, the colt. Mm. Oh, he did later. Now, yeah, King's that, Challenge. I think he won some races later. Would have been would have been King's Delight you might be getting mixed up with. Yeah, I might be too. So you think he finished a maiden, do you, King's Challenge? He wasn't much good. If he won, he would have only won one of them. Yeah. 
at Bullamakanka. A bit erratic, a, typi- a typical star kingdom, went through fences and God knows what else. Mm. Uh, but the filly, Port Joy, I think she only ever won one race also because when she won the gym crack, she went straight up to the top of the weights and everything else and that steadied her up. It's a bad race to win actually. Mm. And she didn't have much chance to win anything because she was a speedy little thing that could get along and she was well-trained and well-educated and she just led all the way. It was 1966 when Tommy Smith suddenly started throwing good rides at you. Now, one day at Rose Hill, he put you on Dark Briar in the Rose Hill Guinness and Victory Roll in the Rose Hill Cup and they both won. What a hell of a day. Yeah, it was a good day. I, uh, I'll always remember it too because they both were, wore all pink colours. Mm. Dark Briar had pink uh, and so did Victory Roll. I think one of them was the club's colours because they forgot to take the colours to the races. But mm. um, Well, that was Dark Briar. Victory Roll's actual registered colours from memory were pink with a black cap. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, well, Dark Briar, I'd, I'd ridden him. I'd ridden him a few times, and um, mm. he 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 was a funny horse. He he didn't like more, and more didn't like him. <laughs> so I always used to get the ride because I was a bit kinder to him than more. Mm. He, he didn't like being stood over, so I sort of jack up going to the barriers and God knows what else, and and I'd let him do it. And he he used to race all right for me, and and that day they both won. Uh, and I finished up going to uh, Queensland with Dark Briar and won the Derby on him up here. Mm. Uh, and then he got beat a short head in the in the Queensland Cup after that also. One of your most memorable wins for Tommy Smith was on a New Zealand mare called Unpainted in the 1968 Doncaster. Had you ridden her before the Doncaster? No, no, she'd only ever had one start in Australia and Mel Shoemaker, he, he ran fourth on her in a welter at Rose Hill uh, and then Doncaster time come around and, as usual, Tommy had half a dozen in the race and uh, and all the good jockeys were on all of those and mm. he, he didn't have a rider for the last one, which was unpainted and, of course, you know, and when he rang up Theo, well, I got the ride, and um, and I was just one of one of a number. That was all. I, I don't think they give it any chance. But mm. well, it was sixty six to one. You drew off the track. You went back to last. Did you give yourself any hope at all in the run? Not really. I sort of. I was only happy to get a ride because you know kids getting rides in big races like that. Although I was riding on jockey's terms because I'd long lost my allowance mm. a couple of years prior to that. Um, but she drew 24 out of 24 and she was 24th at the top of the rise and and she, uh, I, I don't know what the sectional times would be, but they must have been great because oh. she steamed home and yeah. and she uh, she got up and beat a horse called Cabochon who was pretty yep. smart also. Absolutely. I was standing in the broadcast box alongside Ken Howard when that Doncaster was run. And I remember Ken nearly fell out of the box when you came down the outside. You literally jumped out of the ground and on the line she was storming away from him. Yeah, she won by a length and a quarter. Mm. And, you know, I've still got that record, the old record, Mm. 
the 2KY put out yeah. of that call, mm. my sister's got it at her place. Goodness gracious me. The- a little 70, well, a little 45 it is. That's right, yeah. With the race call of that with Ken Howard. Yep, yep. Ken got pretty excited as unpainted flashed up on the outside. Now, Tommy backed her up two days later in the all-age stakes. Yeah, she, she well, she met almost the same field, although there weren't, wasn't as many of them, but they were mostly the same horses and uh, mm. and she just did the same with them again. And now, that was the last I ever rode her. She, she, uh, she was to go to Brisbane for the Stradbroke and uh, she hurt herself on the float going up. I wasn't to ride her, but mm. she uh, she didn't get to race there and then she went back to New Zealand and went to stud. And she finished up throwing a pretty good horse called Plush, who finished up and he was a Melbourne horse. He finished up a pretty good stallion himself. He certainly did, and a, and a good racehorse too. I think he won uh, some group races before going to stud, and as you said, he got a lot of winners. Now, mm. Tommy Smith also provided your very first Group 1 winner as a fully-fledged jockey. The horse was Vita Zane in the 1968 Metropolitan. Yeah, exactly one week I come out of my time. Mm. Uh, and I'd, I'd ridden Vita Zane a few times. I'd won a couple of races on him and uh, and I uh, rode him in the Metropolitan. And he was my first first group winner. Well, he was my first winner out of my time, which mm. happened to be a group one. So uh, he was a handy horse. He was no, he, he was no uh, champion, but he, he was a real typical stayer. He's by Lou Falou, who's... That those days, everything that stayed was by Lee Lou, and that's how come he got his name. He sort of he, he was out of a mare called Tatar, and Vita Zane meaning that in German. That's how right. he come to get his name. But he was a handy horse. I finished up riding him in the Caulfield Cup one year, and uh, he was never that good that he could do anything in a race like that. But he he still went around. Another high profile win for you and T.J. Smith was a top-class sprinter called Black Onyx in the 1970 Doomben 10,000. In fact, the horse had won the 10,000 the year before. And what do you think ran second to you? Poor old Cabochon again. Cabochon again. He was sick of looking at at horses that you were on. He didn't like me at all. And even (laughs) like the the Tates, some people called Tates owned Hmm. Cabochon and Beetle Geese and a few of those others and and Baguette and... Hmm. Uh, some pretty fair horses, and in the finish they put me on Baguette, his last four starts, because they were sick of me beating him. <laughs> so they put me on Baguette, who was at the tail end of his career anyway. But yeah. getting back to Black Onyx, he, uh, I'd ridden him, never Voight, never Voight rode him a few times, and mm. anyway I rode him in the Doomben 10,000, and he got up and, as you say, beat Cabochon. And, mm. and then he came back to Sydney. Well, I rode him in the Doomben Cup, actually, after that, and he, he didn't quite stay the distance, and uh, when he came back to Sydney, I rode him a couple more times and actually rode him in his last start in Sydney in the Hill Stakes, and he bled for the second time, and uh, he couldn't ever race here again, so they shipped him off to America, mm. and uh, he, he won a few over there, and then, then as far as I know, he, he died, So, mm. but I rode him his last start in Australia, and uh, he, w- he was a, a pretty good horse, and I actually thought he would win the Doom and 10,000 because uh, mm. on the Thursday morning I, I was 
I rode him work and um, and there was a, a fellow up here at the time called Keith Noward who was the race caller and mm. he, he was a typical little old Queenslander and he and, and because jockeys weren't allowed to even give an opinion back those days, he 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 come running in after me after track work and he said, uh, and and what do you think? How will how will he go? And because I couldn't tip it, I said, well, whatever beats him will win. And, yeah, that's a good one. That's a good one. That's a good one. <laughs> anyway, he, 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 managed, he managed to beat Cabochon only just as he late rode Cabochon and he thought he'd won. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it was very close. But, no, he was a good little horse and he'd won. That's the, that was his second time. Moore rode him the first time. Yeah. When he yeah, Moore always liked him. Moore rode him in the 1968 Golden Slipper. So he did it from two right through to uh, his uh, double bleed, so to speak, before he went to the United States. But he was a tallish, gangly sort of a horse. He used to race with a breastplate too, Gordon. He didn't look robust at all, did he? No, all Tommy Smith had breastplates. If yeah. you didn't send one out, he'd put one on anyway. <laughs> You know, he had a bag full of them out in the stalls and um, you had to have a breastplate on everything you possibly rode for Smith mm. because he wasn't going to uh, – apparently somewhere along the line, saddle slip, which cost him the race a couple of times, so he was never going to take that chance again. Mm. And you always had to have an all-elastic girth and a breastplate. Mm. If you didn't provide them, he'd provide them for you outside. Mm. Compulsory gear. Yep. Now, is it true – that Tommy Smith asked you several times to move to Randwick to become one of his stable jockeys? Well, he, he, he didn't ask me several times. It was a sort of a well-known fact that when I come out of my apprenticeship, I would go there because mm. uh, I rode a lot of winners for him and I rode a lot for him and uh, and that was getting towards the end of Moore's tether and um, and – you know, it was just a, a, a common knowledge that I was going to go to Tommy Smith's. But then Stan Fox came into the fray and he was the, the biggest up-and-coming owner at the time apart from Foisters. Remember the Foisters? Mm. They they were pretty big at the time. and Stan Fox was going to be bigger than them. Mm. And, uh, and Tommy Kennedy used to train for him at Rose Hill, which was only across the road from our stables. And um, mm. I didn't really like... I didn't want to go to Randwick. It was too complicated for me. Mm. Uh, most of the top riders and trainers were at Randwick and most of the top apprentices were until Rose Hill took over the mantle. We we changed that, us kids, mm. and they all finished up at Rose Hill. But I stayed at Rose Hill with Fox uh, and Mully was stable rider for him. Yeah. Uh, and I was in well, it was retained by Fox. Yeah. Yep. Stan um, Fox put you on retainer as the official number two jockey. Jack Denham yeah. was training for him by then, though, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah. Tommy Kennedy sold the place, and the only one that could afford to buy it was Fox. And I think that was the main reason he started to train for him anyway, so he could sell it. Mm. Uh, and Denham moved from Canterbury to Rose Hill. He then took over the training and I was already retained by them then. Mm. Um, that was the last six months of my apprenticeship. I was still apprenticed to Theo and I'd still do my own work at home 
Yep. But then I'd go over the road and ride track work for them. And and then when Mully retired, well, then I took over the stable jockey position then. Yep. Now, I'm glad you mentioned Athel George Mully. He was an idol to young Gordon Spinks. He was right until the last day of his life. I, I always I always loved the way he rode. He didn't look he didn't look much good on him. Mm. Um, he held his balance in the right and correct places, but he, he he sat up there like a little question mark and he didn't he mm. didn't look crash hot on him at all, but by God he was a good rider and mm. and he could get he could get out of a horse what would take other jockeys a, a, a flogging to get out of. Mm. He'd sit there and he, they, they just ran for him and, and he was such a brilliant little rider and I thought, well, I'm going to, I've got to sort of model myself on somebody so mm. he looks like being the person. And I liked his patience and that finished up. I had the patience of Job myself in the finish because of that. Mm. Uh, Ronnie Quinton, he styled himself on more. And I style myself on Mully, and I don't think there was an inch between the two jockeys in a finish. Mm. And Moore would be hard at it, and Mully would sit there like a little question mark and do nothing, and he'd still get the most out of him. Mm. It, it was common knowledge at the time, Gordon, that Mully was the one jockey that Moore deeply respected. Well, I wouldn't doubt that. Uh, Moore didn't respect too many people apart from himself. I liked him. I loved his. I loved the way he rode. Uh, he didn't do me a lot of favours throughout races, but he didn't do too many others favours either. No, you know he'd get square on you if he could. Uh, and I remember at Canterbury one day, I jumped out of the barrier and and my horse went straight across in front of him and knocked him down, and he fell with along with two or three others. I was riding a horse called Port Fair for Derby Munro. Mm. And uh, I drew the outside in the six furlong race at Canterbury and crossed over a bit sharp and three or four of them fell. Well, he came in and he grabbed Theo and he tore strips off him. He said, I'll kill that kid. <laughs> he said, if ever he does that again, because he had a good ride later in the day, yeah. oh, he was going to kill me. I'll never forget the day, I can tell you. I remember Port Fair too uh, for Derby Munro, very good sprinter, won a stack of races on Metropolitan Tracks. Yeah, I only ever rode him once and... Uh, Knocked more down. Ever, <laughs> yeah, I only ever met Derby once and he was in a wheelchair then. Oh, yeah. And I remember sign, he signed a cheque for me as a sling and it, it was a cross. He didn't even know how to sign his own name. Oh, gee, he was pretty sick towards the end. He was a hell of a good rider from all accounts. I never yeah. ever saw him ride, uh, but I, I did ride a winner for him as a, when he was a trainer, so that was something. Something to dine out on. Hmm. It was 1967 when you decided on a sea change. You made a quick little trip to England to ride for a trainer called Sam Armstrong, who was then the father-in-law of the legendary Lester Piggott. But it didn't go as well as you'd hoped. No, I I, uh, I was told that it was in the pipeline. Edgar Britt, the ex-jockey, put it together. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess he had a lot of uh, contacts in England because he'd ridden there for a long time and um, he instigated it all. And uh, I was quite happy to go. 
because I thought, well, if if you go to those places, well, you must be a pretty good rider to be invited. And I, and I was the first one ever to go over on loan. I was still an apprentice, and mm. they weren't sure whether to allow me to ride as a fully-fledged jockey or as an apprentice because I had no allowance. And uh, as it turned out, uh, they they let me ride as an apprentice over there, and which meant then I had to do stable chores and do everything that an apprentice does. So it was pretty tough going. It was run a bit like the army. Mm. Did you have much uh, to do with Lester in that period? Had a lot. Had a lot to do with him, actually. He he used to find it very hard with his weight, and so he, he, he'd run a lot uh, jogging because I did that same thing in, in Sydney back home. I, mm. I used to run a lot with jackets on and raincoats and everything to keep mm. weight down. And, and when he found out that I did that, well, I'd go along with him. His wife, Susan, used to take us out six or seven miles and drop us off in the car and then we'd run home over ploughed paddocks and through fields and God knows what else. And at the end of it, he'd go his way and I'd go mine and he'd go home and rest, I'd go back to work. Now, Gordon, you met Dermot Weld in Sydney on one occasion and he made a quiet little proposal to you. Yeah, well, that was the time when I did leave Denham and went down to Smith and I thought, well, he did want me to do all his riding at one stage, so he may well want me to do it now. Mm. And so I went down there and presented myself and Kevin Langby, who was a very good friend of mine, uh, he was entrenched there then and he was Dick Smith's very, very – Dick and Ernie Smith, Tommy's brothers, they they thought the world of Kevin, so there was never going to be a chance of me getting in there. Mm. But I still rode for them and um, at the time Dermot – Weld was over from Ireland on a working holiday at Smith's Place and he was also studying to be a vet and he was also a good rider himself. He used to ride in steeplechases and jump races and things. Mm. And uh, I think to get me out of the way because I was going to be a bit of a thorn there after they'd more or less asked me to ride for him, well, here's a chance of getting me out of the way for a little while and said that... Uh, Dermot was out looking for a stable jockey to take back with him and uh, and they put me in for the job, mm. which I took. So that's how I come to get there. Your final international adventure was an unlikely place, Tehran, the capital of Iran, where horse racing was introduced in 1978. Colin Hayes played a major role in getting expatriate Aussie horses over there to race Seven Australian trainers were contracted and you were one of a group of Aussie jockeys who decided to give it a go. They spared no expense in building the track, you tell me. No, we, Colin Hayes was the instigator of all of it. He uh, he got the track built, he did everything and he was the only one that was able to export the horses to there. Mm. Um, he was a very good man, Colin Hayes. He... He was a really, really nice fellow and I remember him bringing over David when he was only a little fat, chubby kid mm. and uh, he's finished up going on and being something himself. But when we were over there, there were only Australian horses there. In the finish, the second wave were New Zealand horses because they'd run out of getting the, the ordinary ones from here uh, and they were paying nothing for them. 
and selling them for plenty. And people were buying six and eight at a time over there for twenty and twenty-five thousand each, which they were paying twelve hundred from here. Mm-hmm. It was a pretty good. Oh well, they were all they were okay because they were all of the same class. None of, none of them were better than any of the others. So uh, it was a level playing field. But it, it it finished up. It would have been okay had it continued. But that that year, the Shah got thrown out of the country, and so did everybody else. Exactly, the Shah of Iran was overthrown in that revolution of 1979 and that was the end of racing and Gordon Spinks came back to Australia. Gordon, there were many other things I wanted to touch on but we're out of time. I I just want to uh, terminate our interview on this note. I told Ronnie Quinton I was going to record this interview and I asked him to give me a little quote about your talents as a jockey. Now, at the risk of embarrassing you, I'm going to pass on R. Quinton's opinion of S. Spinks the jockey. He said you were a champion apprentice and that you and he were great mates as apprentices. He added that you rode many major winners as a kid and that you were a very skilled rider. They are the exact words of your old stable mate, Ronnie Quinton. Well, I didn't think Ronnie would uh, would say something like that, but I appreciate that he did, and it's in appreciation probably because of all the things I taught him. You can pass that on to him. But I appreciate what he said, and he wouldn't say that we were close friends because we haven't seen each other for years, but we're still great associates and we would end up being friends again if we ever passed each other's past. So, uh, no, great rider. I appreciate everything he's gone on and done, and he's worthy of everything he's gone on and done. And in my book, if he wasn't put into the Hall of Fame, I would have put him in there myself because, <laughs> I, I, you know, he, he's, he was just a – he was always going to be something, Ronnie, because he just – He worshipped racing and he still does by the sound of it, and good on him. Gordon, we wish you well for your upcoming heart surgery. You won't know yourself when it's all over. Well, I mightn't want to know myself, but uh, I'm hopeful that everything will go okay. But uh, I'd just like to add before we finish that uh, I have two very dear friends that live opposite me who, without them, I would be at wit's end. Mm-hmm. Uh, their name is Catherine and Adam Gleeson. And of all the people that I've met throughout my life, I think they would be two of the best. Mm-hmm. And they've done nothing but good for me since I've been here. I've only been here for about 12 months. And all they do is help. And I'd just like to thank them very much publicly. And uh, and I hope we remain friends for a, a lot longer than we have. Gordon and I speaks. also thank you for this interview. Ah, it's a pleasure, Gordon. You rode in a golden era of Australian jockeys and you were right up there with the best of them. Thanks for the memories, mate. Okay, thank you for the interview, John. And this podcast was brought to you by Supernova Sound. <laughs>